Hey, Heather, what is Ren and Stimpy about? It's about a dog and a cat. No, it's about so much more than that. It is a groundbreaking cartoon that changed the world of animation. John Kay was mesmerized by cartoons as a kid, and he knew he wanted to make this his life. Inspired by a postcard of a dog in a sweater, he began drawing, creating the character we now know as Ren. In this film, we hear from the animators, artists, and producers behind the making of Ren and Stimpy. Hi, I'm Heather Grayson, writer, producer, and director who craves passion in filmmaking, and documentarians are just that. I write fiction, but I love to watch the truth. My name is B.C. Wayman. I'm an actor, a writer, an entertainer, all sorts of creative endeavors. But what I love most? Being a storyteller. It's why I love documentaries. They're extraordinary stories from everyday, extraordinary people. This is Behind the Doc, and today we are behind the scenes of Happy Happy Joy Joy, the Ren and Stimpy story. You have to keep tapping like that! You bloated sack of protoplasm! I will make him happy again! You idiots! Everything in his life is seen through the lens of a cartoon. That's all he lives and breathes is cartooning, you know, and it's all he knows. John's personality so permeated in that project, I can't imagine it being done any other way than what it was. He was very driven, very ambitious. He had this sort of rock star status. He's the best drill sergeant you'll ever meet, and drill sergeants do need to be cruel. But underneath it all was just, just very ugly undercurrent. You know, it, the whole thing is tragic. It is like a Shakespearean play. Ren and Stimpy was innovative on every level. It was an artist-driven show. The drawings, the paintings, the characters, the voices. Why won't they leave me alone? Welcome, everyone, to Behind the Doc, the uh, podcast where we take a deep dive into documentary filmmaking and the people that make them. We are very excited today to have two people with us who uh, have taken us down a trip down nostalgia lane, while also maybe kind of destroying our childhood a little bit as they really give us the behind-the-scenes details of Spumco, of Ren and Stimpy, of Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, the new film by Kimo Easterwood and Ron Cicero. Gentlemen, how are you guys doing today? Excellent. Very well. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Excellent. It's so excited to uh, talk to you guys. Uh, Heather and I watched the film recently. We were talking before the show how we remember watching it when we are younger. We're probably both uh, late, you know, older teenagers, early 20s when it came out seeing it and kind of enjoying it as adults, even though the show was targeted towards children. And we got to learn a lot of the behind-the-scenes action during Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy. And we want to talk a lot about the film. But before we do that, why don't we, uh, we'll start with Kimo, then to Ron. Just introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about your background before you got to Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, and we'll, we'll go from there. Uh, okay, this is Kimo Easterwood. I've been in film production since 1987. 
in Los Angeles, in the lighting world and the camera world and, and that sort of thing. And then recently over the last like seven or eight years, the documentary world. So a lot of short term, short form documentaries. And then this is our first feature length big documentary that we started four years ago. Four. <laughs> like, we gotta I say that. that. <laughs> yeah, so quite different from the short form doc, which I do in, you know, three or four days. So <laughs> yeah. So that's my story. Now how about you, Ron? Yeah, so Kimo and I met doing lighting together. We were both pretty lucky when we came to LA. We managed to land on some pretty big feature films and just hit it off back then. So, you know, we've been friends for 25 plus years. And I segued more into directing commercials and producing commercials and then eventually acting as an EP, which is sort of like half a film producer and half an agent for the commercial business. I guess I'll segue into how we got into the film, which was I called him one day and I said, look, I'm, I'm just I'm so burnt out with, in the commercial world you know, why don't we do something together? How about a, a doc, like a feature doc? And he's like, well, this friend of ours, Todd White, has this idea about Ren and Stimpy he keeps hounding me on. And I was like, oh, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember ever watching it, but I remember those characters. And we did an hour's worth of research, and then we're like, let's do it. So the lesson here is spend more than an hour if you're going to be spending four years on a project. I watched this whenever I was younger and loved it. I did get a huge appreciation for, after watching your film, for the still shots. When I was younger and I was watching it, I just was like, oh, this is disgusting. Why are they, <laughs> why do they keep putting these disgusting stills on here? Now I'm finding out, well, it's because they put a lot of hard work into those disgusting <laughs> stills. If we're going to show a still, it better be great. It better be amazing painting. It, be, it better be this great painting we can hold on you know, and be disgusting, you know, as, dis as, as gross. And we're going to make you sit on it because it's so beautiful, but yet it's so, so gross. The big attraction was the art. You watch an episode and you're like, wow, this is really different than anything I've seen in a very long time. But it was just so different than like the Scooby-Doo and, and uh, cartoons like that, that I probably were remembered more clearly. And, and then, of course, we read into the, the upheaval when John was asked to leave the show. So that was also interesting, but we kind of felt like that had been covered and the appreciation for the artistry was really missing. So I would say that was the, the initial spark. Like, let's find out who these guys are because this is really something different. And it was funny. It was still really funny. And, you know, you look back at that, uh, at that era and a lot of the cartoons were not evergreen, meaning they would handle maybe topics of the day. So looking at them now, you're like, I don't even remember what they're talking about. But this just was, you know, there was a psychosis there, and, and which, of course, led to the comedy. And, and it was just, you're like, wow, this is so different. Ren and Stimpy felt to me like something that was very clearly come out of the era before it. You just talked about some of the, you know, the sanitized cartoons. We talk about it in the film with these 80s cartoons designed for toys, He-Mans and Transformers and G.I. Joes. It reminded me of the 80s transition from hair metal to uh, grunge, <laughs> right? Like, you know, all those <laughs> totally. Transformers are just, you know, there's a bunch of bands dressed up in spandex, whoever can tease their hair the highest, then along comes Nirvana <laughs> and changes your brain. And that feels like what Ren and Stimpy was. And it was about that same time, 90, 91. It feels very much like an answer 
to what was there in the past in the 80s. When you went down and started watching, and I would imagine you watched a lot of Ren and Stimpy, what were some of the takeaways you found in doing a deep dive into actually watching the show? You know, we started off watching episodes, and then at the same time, we were starting to book interviews and talk to people, uh, not necessarily that worked on the show, but on the peripheral first, like animation historians. You know, we just started at the beginning and and started watching it. Um, My takeaway was just, the subversion and how subtle a lot of the uh, the jokes were. It's really fascinating when you see how deep they go with psychosis, knowing that there's these kids that are going to be watching it, and you know that these kids will never pick this up. So that was really fascinating to me. And knowing that they had to, it was all analog, they had to hand draw everything. So that to me was also very fascinating. You know, they didn't have... Um, you know, they weren't working with computers on those first couple of seasons. So, you know, and then we learned that after they would do a 12-hour day, they would, people like Chris Riccardi and Jim Smith, they would go to a studio and then try to record music and make songs for the show. So, I mean, who does that now? I mean, I just would simply never happen. So these are all things that, that were, were fascinating that we, we sort of took away f- from it. And, and of course, the art was just amazing when you do the still frame and you see the different expressions and you realize like who's ever going to see that but you do see it you know you see it subconsciously all those expressions you know it's not something it's it's very subconscious this this show and that and that was sort of a big takeaway for me yeah i would imagine that's why the people connected with it because it, it did feel in a lot of those expressions very human while you were drawing you had to make the expression So if Stimpy was smiling, you were smiling while you were drawing. Or, you know, if he was angry, you had to really put it into the cartoon. You know, back then, laser discs was a big thing. (laughs) So John and I would get all these laser discs so we could freeze frame them. We studied a lot of the sort of classic Hollywood actors that actually overacted. Kirk Douglas was a favorite. The amount of crazy expressions that goes into his face for one expression is like staggering. And what's extraordinary is you stop and go, I'm, I'm sharing this kind of emotional moment with a drawing. Like people don't, you know, if you stop and think about it, everything in a cartoon is created. It's not like you go to a set and, you know, there's props there and set dressing, etc. This is all drawn and somebody has to design every single thing in that frame and then make it emotionally compelling. So that's that's the part of it that still blows me away. What was really interesting was given that that they're using all of these expressions and drawing all of these things was when they talked about how they would paste and put together and take one thing from one still and and another thing from all that liquid paper and just, they were so emotional. How easy was it for you to get all of everybody, you know, to talk about their experience? Uh, It wasn't, (laughs) is the short answer. The reason for that is, if you're not familiar with the story at all, is it was essentially like a professional divorce. So, When John was asked to leave the show, half of the artists stayed and many of the artists went over to Game Studio, which is the studio that picked it up. I was shocked. I said, if you do this, you're going to be right back where you were before Spumco, where you have no creative say, and you're screwing all the people who built this up. 
but they went because of the, the thought of the glory. Oh boy, now I'll be the big cheese. Even though I've made everybody, all the top people, big cheeses, but not big enough. So these uh, guys, men and women, artists, were super close. So you really had to choose sides. And that's, you know, as you can imagine, that's incredibly difficult. Who do you go with, mom or dad? And so having two strangers start calling you or knocking on your door saying, hey, I know this is the most traumatic event in your professional life, but would you like to talk about it again with two strangers? Uh, you know, you haven't brought it up in 25 years. Seems like a good time. Finally, Bill Ray took either pity on us or wanted to tell the story and, and finally agreed. That's how we we got the ball rolling. Let's go back a little bit, though, because I think we want to, you know, talk about... So John, we keep referencing John. John K, as we like to call him, his real name, uh, full name, John Chris Felusi, who is uh, the creator. John's a great designer, and he designed a lot of the characters. He was doing the stuff we'd all thought about doing, but nobody had the nerves to do. You know, he was sort of the Andy Warhol of animation back then. The guy that people were getting around, and people were thinking, wow, this guy's the new talent in town. He stumbles across someone who likes his work. I think it was, was it Vanessa Coffey that, uh, yes. from Nickelodeon, met with John. He pitched me a project called Your Gang. One of the kids in the project had a dog and a cat called Ren and Stimpy. I didn't like any of the projects he pitched me, but I did like those characters. She just focused in on, who are these two characters here, this Ren and Stimpy? There was an emotional element to Ren and Stimpy that was unlike any other. For our audience, a real quick kind of highlights, and we covered a lot in the film, Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, of kind of the beginning early days uh, when John gets started with Vanessa and then the birth of Spumco, which is where the film really takes off. He had a very specific idea in mind, and he really felt like the industry was not taking advantage of what animation could be. You know, again, it had slid into this really, you know, terrible state, uh, from, certainly from an artistic standpoint. You may love Scooby-Doo because it was a part of your childhood, but if you look at the artwork, let's just say it's lacking. <laughs> <laughs> so, so John, you know, is getting constantly fired because he's like, hey, this is terrible. And they're like, do it or you're out. And he's like, see ya. So finally, you know, they got this meeting because Nickelodeon was just looking to do things differently and they didn't want that style of animation. So he you know, managed to get a meeting with uh, Vanessa Coffey, who is essentially freelance there as, as an executive. And the two of them just kind of shared the same vision. And, and she picked out those characters and said, you know, I really like them. Let's, let's develop this. And, and that's how it got started. And it's, you know, it's really amazing to see, as Kimo pointed out earlier, just the level of dedication Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.
of everyone that was involved, especially in the beginning. It's not like anybody was getting rich. I mean, the other thing, uh, thing too, is that anybody we met, regardless if they were still friendly with John or hadn't spoken to him in 20 years, everybody would say, look, John was instrumental. Because the first cut of the film, we didn't, John refused to participate. So it was always talking about John and, of course, the third person and saying, well, what was John like? And so we got a lot of that kind of backstory before we even met him. And what we always found amusing is no matter who we interviewed, whether it was Lynn or Teal or Richard Purcell or Vince Wall or anybody, they would all, whenever they were talking about John, would use his voice. And they'd be like, well, you got to do this. Otherwise, I'm going to throw you out. You know, and everybody had their John impression. So we, we, when we heard his voice, we're like, oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> it was not surprising then to learn John, who is someone who wants to do everything himself, that he was really adamant about taking the cartoon world back to creators. And I think if we want to talk about John's lasting impression, and there are a few angles we can, but I think for the creative folks, for the artistic folks, particularly those in animation, you do a great reference about the future cartoons and animation that have come before that prior to Ren and Stimpy, we had a few years, a while, where it was cookie-cutter corporate cartoons, as you said, to sell toys, and he brought back that created-by title card, essentially, and it was really important to him. Who created uh, the Transformers cartoon? Who created He-Man? Uh, you have to go way back to get Hanna-Barbera or Chuck Jones. Ren and Stimpy, with created-by John Kay, brought that back. Were you surprised to learn that the, the rebirth of kind of the creator ownership of cartoons has a big tie-in to your film? Yeah, I was a little surprised by that. I guess because, you know, I wasn't a huge animation fan before I started it. So growing up and seeing Hanna-Barbera, and, and I guess I just always assumed that whoever created it would have the credit. And so, yeah, he did open our eyes, or at least my eyes, to that. I was like, wow, I, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, for how many years so many people toiled or came up with these cartoons that are interwoven in the, all of our lives, you know, that they wouldn't have a created by credit. And that it, it really opened my eyes, too, on, on how factory-driven it was. I think Mike Fontanelli, I don't know if he says it in the film, but he's like, literally, if you could pick up a pencil, they would drag you off the street because there was such a demand for Saturday morning cartoons. Like, they didn't even care if you were necessarily an artist or not. If you could trace, then you were in. So... It was surprising, you know, especially because of film, you know, when there, has there ever been a film that didn't have a directed by card? Like, never. We got to meet Scott, who is a huge fan. My name is Scotty, and I'm uh, just a regular schmuck like anybody else, but I just have a massive affinity for this cartoon and its merchandise. <laughs> These are all new things like uh, toilet paper and calendars. These are all the uh, comics. These are all the factory direct ones. Little plushies here. The Ren and Stimpy slippers that they sold at Spencer's. I've always been into cartoons and I've never had a cartoon just grab me by the sack and said, you're coming with us. This one did. I loved his little part in this because he had the slippers. I mean, he was just in there, he was like very much about Ren and Stimpy. He had posted a video, he had a YouTube video, and he just kind of like took a camera and went over his collection of his Ren and Stimpy stuff. So we reached out to him and then he was what, moving, right? He was in the middle of moving or something where all his stuff was packed up in boxes and we're like, we need to come out and, and film all your stuff. And he's like, well, I don't have any shelves. 
So Ron sent him some shelves and he, <laughs> he, he assembled all these shelves. And what you see in the documentary is what he assembled. And he put up all his stuff and we went out there and that guy was awesome. He was just, he was so fun. In the Red and Stimpy footage, that seems like a tremendous amount of hours that you had to deal with. Mm-hmm. What was that process like? Do you have a rough idea of how many, I mean, let alone 52 episodes of Red and Stimpy, thank goodness your editor, as you said, super fan. Do you have a rough idea how many hours you put together to make your 70 hours. Oh, for almost like an hour 50 film, 70 hours. What was that like to go through and decide what of these 60 interviews, what do I use? I mean, that's, a, and you got to cut animation in there. You got to do story. I mean, that's a lot of. Yeah, it was a lot of transcribing. Some of it we did ourselves, others we shipped out. Then it was pulling quotes. Like we had this huge spreadsheet that had all the quotes highlighted that we felt would be appropriate. And then we took those, we typed them up on index cards, and then we put those up on a board. And that was certainly the, the initial approach. The thing that we learned, like, okay, we've been on set, we've done worked on a ton of movies, and, and you know, we, we, there's areas of filmmaking that we know really, really well. And then there's other areas of filmmaking, like being an assistant editor, that we know nothing about. Listen, you have archival drawings, you have archival footage, you have the archival episodes, you have all the interviews. It is a ton of media that you have to organize and, and get in it, and what to use and what not to use. Yeah, we did, we did our first cut as typical directors. We can do this. <laughs> and then we're going through it and we deliver this drive and it's two and a half hours long and we're like, we killed it. <laughs> and then we show it for like, I don't know, eight or 10 friends, somewhere in the business, somewhere in the animation. So, and within like 45 minutes, people are just squirming in their seats because we refuse to cut anything, you know? And finally it was like, okay, we got to get an editor in here because we just cannot divorce ourselves from this. It's almost, a, it was an embarrassment of riches. I mean, when you're talking to these kind of artists too, I mean, they're all, you know, brilliant. So you're going to get some great, great interviews. Well, sounds like you had a bit of a John Kay moment there. You were like, <laughs> I just can't, it's got to be, we got to do it. We got to handle it. You guys had one film without John. And then he said, okay, I want to, I, I now want to be interviewed. Was he just very willing to talk about everything? I, I really appreciated how you guys would not let him just flake out, I, I, for lack of a better term. But when they started talking about, you know, the hard stuff, you guys were relentless a little bit. And I, I really, truly, I, I loved that part of it because you just were like, you could tell you guys were confident in what you were saying. How did that whole thing go? How was it for you? Oh, they all thought I was crazy. They just liked the funny drawings. If I did a funny drawing, they'd laugh. So then I thought, well, I'll make it even funnier. So I'd exaggerate it more and do crazier stuff with it. And I realized that's really the key to cartoons is to make things so exaggerated, so caricatured, that people laugh. If you can make it funny, you win. It, it was tricky. You know, after been being turned down multiple times for a year and a half, and he refused to, you know, even have a discussion about doing the movie, and then this, you know, this news broke and, and Richard, who was a great go-between and so helpful, Richard Purcell, he, he emailed me one day and said, look, I, I think John might be changing his mind. So, you know, weeks go by and back and forth. And finally, he's like, I, I'll introduce you to John and, and then you guys take it from there. And, and then, you know, the first time we meet him, it's watching cartoons. I mean, we literally walk in his house, sit down, he shows us some cartoons, and that's how we start our conversation. And it, and it took 
a solid six months before he finally said, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll sit down in, in front of camera. If, if you're going to dive into somebody's history, you really have to gain their trust because ultimately this film is about finding out why this happened. I remember the final conversation with him and he was just like, please, you know, don't do this. And I said, I have, I, I can't not do this. We have to, we have to do this. You're the one who created it. You created this mess, we didn't. And he denied it, but there was no choice. Hopefully we can learn from it and not do that, make those same mistakes, whether it's an individual or as a society as a whole. So it, it, it took some time to really get to know him, understand where his hot buttons are, understand how we could relate to him. And neither of us, Kimo nor I, you know, wanted to go in as like, ah, oh, we're gotcha, we're gonna get you. It was really important to us that this was a movie where you could present the entire picture about the show, the good parts, the bad parts, et cetera, and have the audience absorb it. Not to say that we're like, yeah, we're pro this, we're pro, you know, we'll get to that part, but it's, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, is we wanted to show it to you without filtering it through some kind of lens. You had your first film done, and then some allegations came out about John Kay and inappropriate contact with specifically two younger women, Katie Rice and Robin Bird. And then it kind of created, you know, this downfall for him. And that is where, I think I saw another interview where you referenced he had a, like a Me Too moment for this inappropriate behavior that he was having during these early days of Spumco and beyond. When you found out that news and you had this first part of film and then he kind of agreed to be interviewed, were you apprehensive to approach this subject and these allegations? Did you know that you had to ask? As Heather said, you did a great job talking about it. What was that moment like? Yes, we absolutely knew we needed to talk to him about it because that was one of the things that panicked us after we delivered this first movie. And when I say delivered, we it was done. I mean, the credits, everything, it was done. Viacom's like, oh, we love it. We didn't do it for them, but we had to get sign off to use the, of course, the cartoon footage. So it was devastating. We're like, great, we just spent you know a year and a half, two years on this film that's never gonna see the light of day because it's toxic. So, you know, after back and forth, we're like, well, you know, hopefully we get John and, and we'll just stay at it, and but we gotta address this. So within our first meeting, we were extremely upfront and just said, look, you know, we want to cover everything that was great about the show, but no, we're going to have to address this because it's now a part of the legacy. And he understood. How you put it out there to the audience was perfect. It's a subject that needed to be talked about, but it was very well done. And I loved hearing Robin's side of it. She's amazing. I was way into Ren and Stimpy when I was a kid, so I started drawing Ren and Stimpy, I took animation classes at a kids' museum, and then when I was 13, I started writing to John Kay. I had built him up in my mind since I was 11 or 12 years old. You know, he had this sort of rock star status in the 90s. I had always wanted to work for him. I just thought, that the, the drawings were just like really cool compared to anything I'd seen on TV and I wanted to draw like that. My favorite part of what she said was, I don't want people to stop and not watch and not love Run and Stimpy because she loved it. It's a really great question. Like, can we love the art and not the artist? You know, yeah, we absolutely can. We can love the art, not, not the artist. When we first 
started out, I mean, John was a genius when it came to this. He had a, he was an amazing artist. He he had a great idea. And then we start finding out a little bit more about him and and understanding who he was as a person, as a boss, as a manager, as somebody we, you know, they worked with. And you got to the point with Vanessa that, you know, she was, you could see that she was heartbroken, you know, that this was so heartbreaking for her. She had to do it, and I loved seeing her aspect of it. Was that a really difficult interview with Vanessa? Because I feel like, I mean, she was holding on to the Stimpy doll the whole time, and she was so almost damaged. Was that really difficult that whole time? Vanessa was one of a few people that reached out to us right after the news broke and said, are you guys going to be doing more interviews because there's, you know, I, I want to address this. So... We, we were in, incredibly grateful that Vanessa and Chris Riccardi and a couple more were willing to do that. But those two in particular were, it was, it was really generous of them and their time and to be so open. We had no idea what that was going to be like. We, we, she was willing to talk to us. We flew out to Chicago. We sat down with her. We had maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 email exchanges and maybe one or two phone calls. And then she just completely opens up about the time with John, et cetera. And, and then, you know, not only that, but as you pointed out, she had this incredible insight into art versus artist and how, you know, what her recommendations are and how artists can be passionate but not take that, turn that passion and anger on the people around them. I mean, it's just one thing after the other. And we're like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. I got a message this morning that made me almost cry because of the way she put it, she was like, you are um, protecting all of the little girls who never put their crayons away. In going through this film and this process, as we kind of wrap up here, if you had for both of you, what lessons from this rise of Spumco and John Kay to its ultimate demise do you think future, you know, creative folks, including animation, but even in your line of work, directors, what type of lessons can we take? Because it felt like a film with some lessons, maybe not intended, like in your face, but there's some lessons to be learned about this rise, this fall, the artistic drive, the starving artist, the power trip. What lessons for both of you can future creative folks and animators take from Spumco and this film? I would say that it is amazing and it's great to be super passionate about something and to really have a vision of how you want something to be done. But then you also have to be accepting of the people around you and advice you're getting from them or whatever, you know, like that's, that's what we had to deal with, with making this film is like, we like, Oh, we know how to, you know, do this kind of thing. And then the editor's like, no, 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 you need to get other people involved and sort of, you know, hone this thing down. And so we have to let a lot of stuff go and go, okay, well, we got to cut that now. And we got to, where we wouldn't have done that before. So that would be the lesson is, is like, you know, be passionate about your, whatever it is, your animation. That's great to do, but there is a point where it's going to tip the mountain and start going down the other end. And you have to, be aware of people's feelings and, and how you treat people. That would be my takeaway is bless you for having a massively passionate about your work, but just be accepting to the people around you and listen to what they have to say. I second that. I, I think it pretty much says everything. I, I guess there, there was one other thing is just how difficult things are to get made. If people just understood how difficult, whether it be a documentary or a show, it, it's just... 
you really have to have almost something wrong with you <laughs> to stay in this business because it is so difficult. And, you know, no matter what you do, somebody's going to slam it for whatever reason. You know, we've been very fortunate. It went to Sundance and had a great reception. It's still, it's just it's so difficult. So to see how John made something that we're still talking about 30 years later, you really appreciate just how hard he and everybody around him had to work to make it that special. Ron, Kimo, thank you very much for joining us on Behind the Dock. We really appreciate it. Happy, happy, joy, joy. It was a great film. It looks amazing. I didn't get my shout out. I love the little old timey TV montage in the beginning. That was like, I started off and I'm like, oh, I love this film already. Two minutes in. <laughs> great artistic, great looking film. Thank you for letting us watch it. We appreciate it. It's a great story, a tragic story, but an informative story along the way. So thank you for your time very much. I loved your film. Thank you so much for sharing with thank us. Thank you. Thank you. The current day examples of shows that I think were influenced by Ren and Stimpy are all of the shows. Its ongoing impact is the way it affected and changed the way people worked on cartoons, looked at cartoons, and, you know, did cartoons afterwards. It's all there, you know, from character design to expressions to timing. You know, it influenced a great deal. Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Dock. If you liked us, because we all know you did. Leave us a review in your Apple Podcast app. Behind the Dock is produced by Evergreen Podcast in association with Gravitas Ventures. Special thanks to executive producers Nolan Gallagher and Michael D'Aloya. Produced by Sarah Wilgroup and audio engineer Eric Coltmau. And you'll find us everywhere and anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.